June 6th, new legislation is set to come into force in Canada that would allow assisted dying. Those requesting assistance to die will need to meet a specific set of criteria set out by law. But what role does Christian faith play in the right to end human life? What is a faithful response to an individual who wishes to end their suffering by choice? Hi, my name is Dan Dick and welcome to Church Matters. Thanks for joining me today for a second and final installment of our two-part series on a Christian response to assisted dying. We'll pick up where we left off on our last episode with Rod Rayner. Rod has lived with severe chronic pain for much of his life and at one point contemplated suicide. What role has your faith community and your spirituality played in, in your capacity to deal with this unwanted hand of cards? It's also an interesting question and one that I've contemplated because there has been both very positive and also very difficult elements associated with how my community has stepped in. Um, over time, we came to realize that if a person came to visit me, there was probably only a 25% chance that they would ever come back for another visit. Hmm. Um, in spite of that, both Susan and I were able to release that and not attach a judgment to that because we understood how difficult it was for people to enter into our world. It strikes me that your response is rooted in a deep, thoughtful, mature spirituality. It would be so easy to be bitter and resentful of the 75% of the people that would never come back and visit. Absolutely. And one of the things that, that we started to work out, and I say we again because I can't understand my situation as simply I working it out. It's Susan and I and our children, our family, our community working this out, out together. But out of that working this situation out, we started to speak of my work as, as dealing with pain. And part of that work was to say no on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on the basis of 10 minutes at a time saying no to bitterness, to anger, to frustration, and saying, no, I have the opportunity to, to take a different stance uh, to, to my pain. That if I go down that rabbit hole of bitterness, anger, I probably will never come back up for air again. And so then it not only destroys me, but it destroys all of those who have voluntarily accepted the responsibility for carrying me through life. You have a very moving story and personal experience. From your viewpoint then as a Christian, does it matter whether assisted dying is legal or illegal in the eyes of the law? I think I would have to answer yes and no. And I'll explain that a little bit. For me, 
this primarily is not a question that can be determined in law. As a person of faith, I think ultimately that needs to be informed by the church, by where I see myself located in, in the church. And I've come to see my identity as not something that I hold singularly, but as identity entangled with all of these other people that surround me. For example, if you want to get a sense of who you were when you were 10 years old, how do you do that when you're 50? You go back and you speak to your parents, to your grandparents. And to me, that suggests that my identity is vested in them. They share, they hold some of my identity. And so my identity isn't held inside me per se, but I divest it. It's held in all of these wonderful places. And so fundamentally, I don't see it as a decision that I can make alone. Because to say that is, is to turn my back on all of those people that hold my identity, all of those people that will be dramatically affected by my withdrawing my identity through suicide. So I don't see it as, as a possibility unless that blessing comes from the community as a, as a whole. On the other hand, um, as a sociologist by training, I very much believe that some of the fundamental assumptions that we've made about the working of our society have put into motion a, a circumstance where governments are unable to step aside from the inevitability of assisted suicide. Mm. In other words, when the emphasis is put on our personhood as, or the marker of our personhood as being productivity and efficiency, then it's possible for the Richard Dawkins of the world, you know, the proponent of atheism, to say, well, a person with Down syndrome cannot be productive, cannot be efficient, therefore is a drain on society, and therefore we should open suicide. And I can't buy into that set of assumptions. I don't think that those assumptions sit within our faith perspective. Our faith perspective, I think, tells us something very different, that there is a value in inefficiency because Otherwise, those for whom disability is front and center have no place. They're fundamentally inefficient. But do I say that they're no, have no value to society, that they have no value to me? I, I can't go there. And so I can't go uh, to the place where I can unilaterally say I'm committing suicide. You've posed your response, in essence, as um, a community response versus an individual one. Yes. And so, but that's a huge challenge to one's family, one's circle of friends, one's faith community. 
Can you say more about that? Yes, absolutely. That's a responsibility. But on the other hand, if I take on that total responsibility, then what position do I place those others in? As simply bystanders that have to acquiesce to my individuality. And so they have no say in spite of what I said before, my identity is entangled with them. And so I think I have to listen to them. I have to, to accept their counsel that it's not as simple and straightforward as the proponents of assisted suicide purport to be. At the same time, I also think that our society has gone wrong in prolonging life at all costs. I think that there's a certain beauty, a discipline to, to learn uh, in the art, and I use that word art of suffering, that it opens up opportunities for us to see life in a fundamentally different way a way that I think is deeply rooted in our faith tradition. It sounds like a very biblical approach to this whole idea of enabling and embracing your community in this kind of a big decision. That's the perspective that I bring to the, to the Bible. I'm not untouched by the historical fact that the Jews were told not to live in the future. At least mentally, they were not allowed to go there because that the future was to be fulfilled by the coming of the Messiah. They were to be people of the present and to be people that remembered the past. And if I take that seriously, then the future is not mine to control in the way that we assert now within our society. I push back on that. I don't want that. To me, one of the things that allowed me to, to survive all of those years in bed was to selectively allow myself to go into the past. And by selectively, I mean to only allow myself to go back to those elements of the past that were nourishing of my present. Because to go back to the negative parts was often to get overwhelmed by what had occurred. The same next thing was to try to keep myself from going into the future. Because I don't think that we have a very good sense of what the future is. Hmm. That's where we spend an inordinate amount of our time, and yet we know so little about what that future would entail. And so the only way that I could survive was to live in the present. How can I bring grace into this moment of extreme anguish? How can I tangibly be present for my daughters, for my wife, my friends, my family, and that was enough. But by taking care of the present, the future automatically got taken care of. You sent me 
just a little while ago, a comparative pain scale. And you noted that this pain scale is logarithmic. Right. A number of years ago, I had acute appendicitis and have emergency surgery, and they kept asking me on a scale of 1 to 10, where was my pain level? And I didn't know at that time that it was logarithmic. So I would say, oh, 8. Right. Uh, just a guess. Earlier, you said the pain you've experienced has been compared to 50 times that of childbirth. Yes. What's your pain level at today? And you've referred to this implant you received. How has that implant helped? Um, today's not a great day. So I'm sitting at about an eight. Um, and an eight is equivalent to childbirth. Um, the implant has transformed my life in, in many ways. In that prior to the implant, it was impossible for me to get out of bed for any duration. To go to the bathroom was a huge in endeavor. The implant, stated briefly, um, is made up of two wires that are fed up internal to my spine, along my spinal cord. And on each of those corresponding wires, there's eight electrodes. And then in my hip, I have a, a computer and a um, set of rechargeable batteries. So that's all underneath the skin. Uh, I recharge myself every night, charge the batteries back up. But essentially what it does is it plays an elaborate game with my brain, convincing it that there's less pain there than there actually is. So that has drawn my pain levels down from about a nine and a half down to, you know, a seven, you know, on a, on a good day. And, and for me, that's enough to get me back up on my feet. I have to be extremely careful with my activity. It allows me to engage in the life of, of my family and friends, etc. I can't fathom that an implant brings you down to only a level seven when I'm sitting here at a level zero. Yes. But for me, I don't know anything other than that, right? It has been so many years that I have lived at that, that level. Uh, that pain is uh, is an unwanted companion that's always with me. But again, to go back to a theme that we've already addressed in, in numerous different w ways, the attitude or the way that I relate to that unwanted companion is very much a choice. Rod, after receiving this technological implant in the Netherlands, did you feel some sense of redemption for your pain, some sense of healing redemption as a result of that? That's an interesting question because some people posed it to me as a statement that this was a, a, a redemptive experience. And I found that question troublesome and didn't know how to re respond to it. And here's where I, I ultimately came to kind of settle out this question. And that was to say, no, the implant 
transformed my life. The redemption that has happened in my life began far before the implant. And why do I say that? If the implant itself is the road to redemption, then is redemption only open to those of us who are affluent? And that troubles me when we attach access, access tied to privilege, access tied to affluence. Not to mention entitlement. I exactly. And having lived in some of the poorest places in the world, Bangladesh, which both Susan and I spent extended time with Mennonite Central Committee there, that troubles me. And so I'm far more comfortable in saying that the implant, yes, it transformed my life. The creativity of humankind as expressed in this technological innovation has transformed my life, has allowed me to more fully embrace life. But the far more significant elements of this whole experience, the redemptive elements, started years before that. You have opened up in Winnipeg here a large home to university and college students. When I hear you speak and you talk about immersing yourself in the lives of others, it almost sounds to me like that home you've built and that community within your home is almost a form of treatment or therapy for you. Yeah, absolutely. Just to give a little bit more context, my wife and I um, set up a home called Emmaus House, uh, an intentional community f for students. And so we have uh, 10 students, undergraduate students, uh, that live with us and that we live in full community with each other. And that decision to enter into, into community with students was motivated very much by the sentiments that you expressed. For, for me, it is a, a way of, of dealing with my pain. I, I think that often the perception that young people enter into the world as they move into adulthood is that the only life worth living is the one that is free from struggle, right? The, the one where everything goes according to plan. And my life messes with it. It muddies the water. And so you walk alongside young people, and I think give them a far more realistic and hopefully ultimately more hopeful understanding of what life can hold for them. That when one's dreams come crashing down doesn't mean that it oneself similarly comes crashing down behind it. What encouragement would you offer to others in your shoes, dealing with a great deal of pain slash discomfort and a desire to end one's life? That's an extremely difficult question because in a context of an interview like this, it's 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 easy to revert to cliches. Mm -hmm. It's easy to revert to easy answers. And I know all too well the deep 
struggle that exists when somebody is suffering so intensely. And so it is with some trepidation that I step into that question. But here is what I would say. If pain allows one or provides the rationale for isolating oneself from the rest of the world, the game's over. The only way that I can see my way through to dealing with the pain that I experience every day and will experience for the rest of my days is to sequester myself deeply into the presence of others and deeply into the presence of God. For me, again, you asked, how did I survive? Uh, I spend a significant portion of my day in centering prayer. You may want to call it meditation. You can call it other things. But it is to allow God to, to bear that pain for me, that it's not my responsibility. It's not incumbent just on me. It is something that I think needs to take me into deep connections with the other. Thank you so much, Rod, for your courage and sharing your story with me and with our listeners. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a privilege. Thanks for joining me today for a second and final installment of our two-part series on a Christian response to assisted dying. If you would like to access resources on the theme of faith and assisted dying, visit commonword.ca and type assisted dying into the handy search bar. You can join me again in just four weeks for another episode of Church Matters. We're here for you at 8.45 a.m. on the third Sunday of every month. We love to hear from our listeners, whether it's by email, phone, or snail mail. Tell us what's on your mind via churchmatters at mennonitechurch.ca or mail us at 600 Shaftesbury Boulevard, Winnipeg, Manitoba, R3P0M4. We're always happy to receive your phone calls and always appreciate your financial support for this program at 1-866-888-6785 or via the donate link at MennoniteChurch.ca. I'm your host, Dan Dick. Know that you are called, equipped, and sent to be the church in the world today. Thanks for listening. As you go out from here, may the Lord go with you. The face of God shine on you every day. We are sent by God wherever we are living, salt and light as people of the way.